You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 11. Today, we're asking the question, how are trade-off decisions made between production and safety? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? G'day David. The question we're going to ask today is how are trade-off decisions made between production and safety? Uh, This is something that we've talked about a fair bit in previous episodes. We've got competing operational goals. We've got achieving what the main thing the business is setting out to do, the production. And then we've got avoiding getting hurt, which is the safety. And obviously, it's a really complicated question how those two things sometimes work together and sometimes need to be traded off against each other. And so we're not going to be able to answer it quickly in 30 minutes looking at just one paper. But hopefully we'll be able to use the paper we've got today to talk a bit around the issue and provide a few practical takeaways and maybe some questions that we can dive into deeper on future episodes. Goal conflict is one of those ideas that comes up constantly in major accident investigations, whether it's spacecraft, trains, planes, nuclear power stations, it comes up as this question of safety versus cost or safety versus keeping going and getting the business done, getting the shuttle launched or getting the trains arriving on time. Safety compromised in favour of one of the other operational goals. But it's something that is rarely addressed in detail in the safety theories. One of the people who has talked about it a lot is Rasmussen. Now, you'll hear the name Rasmussen coming up a lot whenever we talk about safety theory. He's kind of the granddaddy of a lot of the current safety intellectuals. You can trace the genealogy from Rasmussen, who he supervised and who they supervised. I think I'm technically something like a fourth-generation Rasmussian. Uh, David, I think you're pretty much the same. And in the 1970s, Rasmussen uh, created this pretty famous model that shows a like envelope where you've got one line which is the boundary of cost, another line which is the boundary of quality, and another line which is the boundary of safety. And you've got work getting pressure from each of those boundaries and moving fairly fluidly inside the space that those boundaries create. And the trouble is that we know the cost boundary and we know the pressure places, and we know the resource and quality boundaries and the pressure they places but we don't really know exactly where the boundary is for safety. And so unless there's something pushing back, you've always got this sort of constant pressure to push the safety boundary. And that's what makes goal conflict and trade-offs hard to understand and hard to make, is that we know that safety matters, we know that we need to think about it, but we've got these much more concrete, much more immediate visible pressures coming from the other direction. That's a bit abstract, David. Do you want to give us a couple of more specific examples? Yeah, I'd really like to talk about some some practical examples here just to sort of make it clear what we're talking about when we talk about production and safety trade-off. And it's it's going to be similar, but a little bit different to the authority to stop work discussion that we had in um, in a previous episode, Drew. So let me, let me give two examples that our listeners can kind of work through. 
Say you've got a lone service worker who comes across a job where they're required to lift a difficult piece of equipment. Now, that worker decides to call for help, and so another worker has to be sent from a different job that they were doing to this job, and they have to defer the other job, and so the overall job costs three times as much. To And what, what's happened there is that production has been sacrificed for safety. But there's no incident when the second worker comes along to help. But then there's also no guarantee that there would have been an incident the first time if the individual worker had tried to lift that piece of equipment themselves. So you're constantly in this fuzzy boundary of, well, we've made the trade-off for safety, but how do we know that we had to make it? And I suppose a, a larger and more famous one was, say, for example, in the 80s, NASA had decided to postpone the Challenger Space Shuttle launch due to the cold temperature on the planned day of the launch. So it would have cost them millions of dollars. There would have been somewhat irreversible public media and government reputation damage. Then say they relaunched a month later with no incident. It was warmer, the O-ring didn't fail, the, the launch was successful. But there's still no way of knowing that if they had have launched the month earlier on the day that they planned, whether there actually would have been the incident because you can't kind of prove something that didn't happen. And so this trade-off between a certain cost or schedule or, or quality disruption and the chance to avoid a possible safety incident is what makes these concepts that we have today, like a LARP as low as reasonably practicable and cost-benefit analysis and return on safety investment. And these concepts are really fuzzy more than 25 years after they've been introduced. So we kind of don't know. We, that's why I think we don't have a lot of great theory around around gold conflicts and, and trade-offs, even though a number of people have talked about it. And probably, Drew, the resilience engineering literature and, and theory is probably one of the theory areas that's had the most attention given to, to trade-offs and gold conflicts. And, and much of this was due to the early work of Dave Woods and his term sacrificial decisions after he was involved quite closely in the Columbia uh, space shuttle incident and NASA's now infamous faster, better, cheaper ideology that he'd concluded had encouraged, encouraged risk-taking that had compromised safety. So, yeah, there's a bit of a risk here that we, we start with something that sounds more sophisticated like resilience, and it comes back to basically just making people for blaming a decision that we'd rather they didn't make. But the real question that's raised here is how are these decisions made? Are people even conscious that they're making a decision? And what are the factors that go into making the decisions? Because it, it's clear that you know, understanding how these trade-offs are thought about is really important for understanding why people sometimes go ahead and why they sometimes make the trade-off in the other direction. So the paper we've got for this week is called Articulating the Differences Between Safety and Resilience, The Decision-Making Processes of Professional Sea Fishing Skippers. So just try saying that three times fast. It's a little bit of an old paper. It's one of the classics. It was in the Journal of Human Factors in 2008. Um, and the three authors are Gail Morell, Renee Amalberti, and Christine Chavon. And I think the name that you'd most recognise out of there is Renee Amalberti, who has gone on to become quite a big name in resilience and safety science theory. So I think, Drew, these authors are kind of well-credentialed to research and write about production and safety trade-offs. And I like your way you framed it earlier. If we just assume that production and safety do trade off in all organizations, or let's just say, um, I can't think of an organization where they wouldn't, then what we concern ourselves or what we should be really interested in is how people make decisions. When do they choose safety and why? When And when do they choose production and why? And therefore, how might we as practitioners 
create circumstances and environments within organizations that enable decision-making to be made in the favor of the way that we want it to be made. So the researchers picked uh, sea fishing as an industry. And I think specifically because um, a number of safety authors at the time, and there were some statistics around that had labeled sea fishing and maritime, the maritime industry more broadly as the world's most dangerous profession. Charles Perrault had stressed that human factors were always pertinent aboard ships. And I think Perrault had famously talked a lot about the Torrey Canyon incident and at the fear of talking disasters with uh, the host of disaster cast, the Torrey Canyon was one of the first big super tankers that wrecked on the Isles of Scilly in 1967. And that was down to the captain taking a direct route over the Seven Stones Reef inside the Isles for the sake of saving six hours. Now, it wasn't just a saving of six hours. If if the window had been missed, I think the Torrey Canyon would have had to sit around for over a week until the tides were good enough to come into the harbour. So running a 120 million something litre or gallon tanker full of oil over a set of rocks to save a week was a decision that that captain had made. So I guess I should point out here, since our listeners are all podcast listeners, and I know at least some of them are suffering from disaster cast withdrawal. Uh, Tim Harford has a new podcast out, and I think his very first episode deals with the um, Torrey Canyon disaster, and he's got quite a, a sophisticated story he tells about it. So his, his new podcast doesn't just cover safety, but sort of covers uh, sort of big disaster stories that have a moral to tell. Yeah, that's um, the title of that podcast is Cautionary Tales for those that are interested in chasing it down. Um, I'm up to date. It's a really good podcast. But by way of numbers, for, for those of us who, who are used to dealing with numbers, as, as most of us are in safety, um, in 2000, the fatality rate for sailors was 100 per 100,000 sailors per year. And that was opposed to um, a reference rate of 15 per 100,000 for construction workers. So, so sort of six times the fatality rate in um in the maritime sector at that point in time in 2000 as for the construction sector. So so these researchers chose that, well, if we're going to look at the trade-off between production and safety, let's go to a high-risk environment from a safety point of view and a dynamic environment, and let's find the one that we think is is the most dangerous and and go to work there, go to to work researching there. But then the question is, how are we going to study decision-making? If we're going to study people and a really high-risk occupation making decisions, the researchers can't possibly spend the number of hours necessary on board lots and lots of these ships waiting for decisions to be made and then analysing those decisions, particularly given that decisions are made in such a high-risk environment. So they had to have a method that would let them explore how people make decisions without having to sit and watch all of the decisions. So step one was to do what we've suggested is necessary for a lot of safety research, which is to get out there and to at least spend some time watching it directly in context. So one of the researchers spent 14 days on board a sea trawler, observing the decision-making. And in particular, what they were interested in is what are the necessary factors that go into that decision so that we can replicate the decision-making environment somewhere that's a little bit safer to study it. So they did that sort of 14-day ethnography and then discussed what they thought they saw with a bunch of other experienced skippers to make sure that they could develop two really realistic simulations that they could then put a bunch of real sea skippers into these simulations to watch how they made the decisions. David, do you want to take us through how the simulations were run? Yeah, so once they had formed this model of how 
in what context certain decisions were made between safety and production and what the relevant inputs and sources of data um, and decision-making processes that were followed were, they designed these two simulations. And so what they did, we were just talking about this before we jumped on the podcast, it was, we got to remember this research was done about 15 years ago and they didn't just provide scripts to the research, they designed a, almost a computer, well, not almost, but they designed a computer interface where the participants were able to select buttons that represented certain pieces of information and then certain scenarios would flash up on the screen. So they had a fairly standard um, set of scenarios across this 14-day simulation or a 14-day simulated trip where on day zero, they were given certain information to make a decision and day two, day six, I think, and day 10. And they were constantly getting fed information about weather, the catch, the state of their fishing equipment and, and other vessels. And one of the cool things was when we say fed information, the information was available, but they could choose which bits of information to look up and focus on. And the researchers kept track of that. So, for example, they could see whether the fish, whether the skippers looked at the weather reports before they left port or not. The reports were available, so were emails from other captains, so was information about the weather forecast, so was information about where the fish were. And they could choose which bits of information they were going to use to make their decision with. And when they made their decisions, they gave them certain options that they could choose. So, for example, five options, it might be continue fishing with this information or move to another fishing spot or return to the harbour or so on or other. And then they had to always explain other. And then when they made that decision, they had to provide a justification. So I choose to find another spot to fish because of a, B, C, D, or E, and they were all defined about whether it was safety, whether it was to maximise the catch, whether it was to look after their fishing equipment and things like that. So we're getting really good insights into what, how people were accessing data to make decisions and, and what information sources they are accessing, then what the decision that um, they made, and then what their reasoning was behind making that decision. So really interesting and allowed for a lot of statistics. 34 participants were equally divided into two groups. So 17 skippers did each of the two scenarios and they worked their way through through the scenario. And before we talk about the findings, there was a subset of that group, I think about eight that were involved in a, in a debriefing exercise, Drew. They were given a questionnaire about the theory of planned behavior to get some additional data. But we won't talk about that too much now, but they did, they did actually do a third part of the study, which involved a questionnaire just to try to model the difference between what they thought they or what they found in their own study and what responses that were provided against the survey of the theory of planned behavior. So a couple of quick things I want to point out before we get into the findings. The first one is these two different groups. What they're testing is one of the groups has access to good fishing. And so the catch is uh, complete really quickly. And in the other scenario, they have the same weather and the same decisions, but the fish are much more scarce. So they didn't say this explicitly, but I think the theory that they're going with is that people are going to make more dangerous decisions when they're much more worried about getting enough fish. And they're going to be more conservative when the catch is going well, when they don't need to worry so much. I don't recall. Did um, Was that mentioned in the paper, Drew? Because I was thinking it was more people were going to be far more willing to take a risk when the prize was greater. Oh, that, that's, that's interesting you made. The, yeah, they, I don't think they explicitly said which way they were assuming, but they just sort of had these two conditions that they were comparing. Yeah, at one point they talk in the paper about mountain climbers and, and like the people in the Himalayas who climb Mount Everest and, and the risk that they take because of the size of the prize of summiting the biggest mountain in the world. And so I, when I interpreted that, I interpreted that 
if if the fish if the fishing was going badly, then they may as well just head back to the harbour and come out another day. But if the fishing was going good, then they were going to stay out. Oh, so it's interesting that we made different assumptions. But um, yes, spo- spoiler alert: we're going to find out that it makes no difference whatsoever. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to point out is that one thing that we do know from simulation studies, because they do these a lot in economics, particularly, is that people tend to take higher risks in a simulation than in real life because they're dealing with hypothetical consequences, not actually going broke. And so the authors acknowledged this and they tried to make the scenarios as realistic as possible. But yeah, just word of caution when interpreting results is that we should assume that in real life, that maybe the skippers would be a bit more conservative than they were in the simulation. Okay, David, hit us with the results. Yeah, so the results are are interesting. So basically the researchers observed that from the time that the skippers left the harbour aboard their, their sea fishing vessels, they never gave up on fishing. You know, that was their core business. That w- that's what they were there to do. Even extreme conditions, regardless of the weather, regardless of whether the catch was good or not good, they referenced that they didn't consider them to be suicidal. However, the, the sea fishing skippers used multiple expert strategies to reduce risk, with, which may, meant that they never had to give up on actually, actually fishing. So the actual option, the option that was provided to them multiple times in both scenarios was to suspend their fishing activity and return to the harbour. And it was actually never considered except by one single fishing skipper in all of the 34 scenarios to maybe actually be decided. And something that I love is remember that the skippers have to explain each decision. And the one skipper who did return to harbour when asked to explain the decision, it had nothing to do with the weather. He was going in because he thought that everyone else was staying out and he'd get a better price for his catch if he went in now. And that that was consistent across the study, that whenever the skippers made decisions that were good for safety, there was always some non-safety reason. So the guy who returned to harbour early was doing it to get a good price, even though he's also avoiding the worst weather. The skippers who moved away from the bad weather were making themselves safer, but they said that they were doing it because the heavy swells made it hard to catch prawns. And if they moved away from the bad weather, it would also be better fishing. And that was one of the important, I suppose that was the importance of collecting that information about why they made the decisions, because you could look at that decision, which a number of them made to move into sheltered waters when the weather got bad and think, oh, that's great. They're being safe, but they're actually only doing that to maximize their catch because when the nets are bouncing up and down, they can't catch the prawns on the bottom. So they actually just move in purely to get more, you know, to get more catch. And if it was the opposite, they probably would have just stayed in the weather. So what did the authors conclude when they found these results? So the authors conclude that, you know, systems that are run by craftspeople, so these systems that are highly dynamic, sometimes remote, small work groups, people who are very experienced, they conclude that these systems are basically natively very resilient because they rely on a high level of adaptability um, based on the actor's expertise. And it's that expertise is gained by an exposure to frequent and considerable risk. So it's kind of like this cycle that the more risk that people are exposed to, the more expertise they have in dealing with that risk. And then the more, I suppose, risk that they're willing to take on because of their, their reliance on their own expertise. And in these situations, you also say that each actor is responsible for their, their, their own safety. So what, what the authors were concluding, and remember that this paper was published only two or three years after the resilience engineering theory movement kind of first, first started, they were sort of saying it was these industries where this native uh, resilience was present that was 
probably more adaptive than anything that we can try to put into our, our existing organizations and our existing systems. So one thing we should definitely point out here, and remember the title of the paper gives a hint to this when it talks about the difference between resilience and safety, is that when we say that these systems have a lot of native resilience, that is not the same thing as saying that these systems are inherently safe. This is a very resilient, very adaptive system, but it is also 10 times more dangerous than construction, which is one of the most dangerous, physically dangerous industries. So when we talk about resilience here, we're not saying, hey, everyone should copy this, this is great. What we're saying is that we should be very worried that maybe classic safety interventions are not gonna work here, that because of the way the system works, we should be very careful about how and when we intervene. Yeah, I think they, the authors expressly reference that. They, they conclude that they're not even sure it's possible to design a safety system and preserve the craftsmanship and the expertise and therefore the native resilience in these systems. So they're sort of saying that classic safety interventions, like you said, Drew, putting in rules and procedures and, and, and requirements and processes and all these things that we might think about as classic safety interventions in this type of a context may not work. And the authors also propose that it's probably going to have more adverse effects on safety given the, the pursuit of these types of industries towards production, putting additional constraints into their system is potentially likely to cause you know, less safe workarounds than what they're actually, how they're currently adapting today. So this doesn't come directly from the study, but it's very well reasoned. It's not just speculation either. What they can see in these industries is that whenever there's some sort of constraint in the system, that increases the motivation for people to take high-risk, high-return strategies. And so that's been seen, for example, when fishing resources get scarcer, that increases the amount of risk-taking that each individual skipper has to do. When there are conditions like the limiting the time that people are allowed to fish in or the conditions they're allowed to go out in or the size of the catch that they can have, all of those previous well-intentioned policies have had these perverse effects. And so the concern is that safety rules would follow that same pattern that we, they've already seen in the fishing industry, that putting constraints around the system just makes it harder for people to adapt and more likely to take higher risk strategies in order to survive and to be productive. Yeah, they actually propose a, a formula for observed safety at the end of the paper. And they talk about two things. They talk about constrained safety is basically SC in the formula and then managed safety which is, um, or self-managed safety, which is almost that um, individual adaptive capacity. And they talk about different types of systems, about the different balance between your ability to constrain safety through normal traditional safety management practices and your, your necessity to rely on self-managed safety and the adaptive capacity of individuals. And they propose different formulas and different weightings for, for almost different types of industries for what sort of safety you'll, you'll observe in that particular system. Yeah, this is something that Amal Berti likes to do a lot, is to put these sort of categories around types of industries. And he makes the suggestion much more explicitly in his book, Navigating Safety, that you can almost decide what type of industry you're in and how sensible it is to apply type safety around that industry. So he thinks that, for example, in aircraft design, it does make sense to put in type rules and type management systems. Whereas in industries like sea fishing, he puts down the other end of the spectrum. And it's interesting that he puts healthcare down at the same end as sea fishing, as one of these complex craft-driven industries where it wouldn't necessarily be productive to put in place the tight rules and constraints. 
and I think for those of our listeners who are in the healthcare sector, at least a couple of conferences that I've speak, spoken at in the last year or two, I think that whole industry is struggling to understand where it might sit on that continuum because it's adopting a lot of constrained safety practices from other industries, including aviation, into the healthcare sector. And you know, I think there's some situations in healthcare that are as, as complex and adaptive as, as any environment you're going to find in any industry anywhere. So, David, that's probably a good point to move on to practical implications. Uh, just before the podcast, we were looking at the heat map of downloads, and I didn't see any sitting in the middle of the North Sea. So I'm presuming that none of our listeners are out on sea trawlers. So what sort of conclusions should we be drawing from this if we're not ourselves sea skippers? Yeah, so let's try to have some conclusions that are a bit more generalizable than just to seafarers who might be listening. So I think one of the things that I took out here, which was a bit of an extension of the work, that if the fishermen don't catch fish, then they don't get paid. So it's not like these fishermen are getting paid an hourly rate by anyone to sit in the harbour and not to catch fish. So if they stay in the harbour for bad weather, they don't get paid. We need to be very mindful of you know piece rate contracting strategies. And they, these happen in lots of industries, construction, oil and gas, utilities, transportation, which is that contractors don't get paid if the work doesn't get done. And typically, they might have a fixed rate for a particular unit of production. And so if you're wanting your business partners or your delivery partners or your contractors um, or even your own employees, in which probably wouldn't be the case, but your contractors, at least in these environments where if they don't do the work, they don't get paid, then you need to understand the, um, the push you, you're making towards trading off safety against production because you are, you're, you're expecting people to trade off a certainty of not getting paid and have them be cautious around, around their own safety. So really what you're going to get in that environment is you're going to get people to continue production to the absolute minimum acceptable level of safety that they've got as individuals or as work groups because the pressure in those organisations to get the work done, to get paid, is going to be very high. And following on from that, the skippers in this study were very open to any type of safety which didn't force them to compromise trying to maximise their catch. So they didn't like the idea of having to trade off safety for productivity, but they were very on board with anything that would give them the tools to be safe while they were being productive. So anything that gave them, for example, better information about where the weather was, they were very open to. Anything that gave them tools that they could navigate and be safe in bad weather conditions, they were openly encouraging of. Whereas safety work that tries to control their decision-making is not helpful at all. It's just putting them in an impossible situation. And I think that's a good general rule to take in that giving people assistance with safety and giving them options is unlikely to have perverse consequences. Where we run the risk of doing safety that's problematic is when we're actually trying to make people make decisions differently from how they would otherwise have made them. There, you know, we might say we're trying to help them be safe, but actually we're trying to just force them to make different decisions. And that's what can have the perverse consequences. Yeah, I, I think, Drew. And then the third takeaway is that it's obvious that it's obvious for jobs where risk-taking is great, so the more dangerous jobs that our workers work in, they will acquire skills in how to manage those dangerous risks that they face in their work. And that can, and be aware that that can in turn further increase their risk-taking. It's a, it's a meta-knowledge type of effect. So yeah, you have that story of, of someone who's a roof tiler, for example, and has been doing that for 30 years without any fall protection, and they've never fallen off a roof. They've probably had a whole lot of things happen in that 30 years of work where they've acquired a whole lot of expertise and skill to adapt and manage that working on the roof environment. 
and that experience can in turn further increase their risk taking. I think, Drew, we we talked about this as a finding in the paper on why do people break rules, I think way back in maybe even episode one um, or episode two. So knowing that that's happening in your workplace and knowing that your, your people who work in risky roles are requiring a lot of skill to manage those situations means you need to work closely with them to understand how they are adapting and managing those situations and whether whether that's consistent with the way the organization wants to support them to do their work. I also want to think about on the other side is the development of this adaptive capacity is one of my fears, Drew, is we've taken so much variation out of work through our pursuit of standard operating procedures and prescribed work methods means that if if one step is out of order of a job, there's a risk that our workers don't necessarily have any experience or expertise in how to safely adapt around that work. So the example that I give is something like if people always do a task off an elevated work platform and one day that task isn't available, do you know if your workers have ever done that task off a ladder before? Because we know from this study and we know from a lot of other studies that workers will find a way to get their work done. We spoke about it last week in the Authority to Stop Work paper that that they will find a way to adapt around the situation they face and get their job done. So understanding how they're going to adapt and how they're going to do that and whether you can support them to do that in a safe way means um, you might have to let people do their work in different ways on different times to develop the capacity to face the problems that they face with their work. One thing that really frustrates me is that people try to copy so much the aviation industry and they copy the safety management systems, which suck up a lot of people's time. But the one obvious thing that they don't copy is just how much aviation does simulation training to allow people to develop skills in different situations. Yes, that sort of training takes up time, but so do safety management systems. And that sort of working in simulations lets, exposes people to risks in ways that lets them develop the skills without actually having to face risks. And there's a number of jobs where I think that's a very positive thing to do. Yeah, and I think, Drew, there's, there's I mean, more trade-offs in cost and risk of doing those simulations. I know of organisations that have suspended their training of fire wardens with using real fire extinguishers because of the cost of basically letting people actually discharge fire extinguishers in a, in a controlled way. So, so people no longer have the actual simulated training in how to use that equipment that they're responsible in the organisation to use. I also know of organisations that have suspended their physical evacuation training of workplaces because of people who'd rolled ankles and had a recordable injury on the stairs while they were doing an evacuation drill. So the time and the cost and the recordable incidents associated with simulation training means that it can be easily discarded, whereas in aviation, it's a mandatory requirement um, for a number of sectors within the aviation industry. So it, it is important to understand if, if, if you can give people the expertise in a simulated environment, then you can have a little bit more confidence that they might be able to navigate the situation when it occurs for real. So should we move on to what don't we know? Yeah, let's do that. So, so one thing that this study really sparks for me is just I'd love to see more of this sort of genuinely innovative research. You pick up paper after paper and it's survey, survey, survey. And in this one, they did a really cool and interesting simulation. Now, putting people into simulations has its advantages and disadvantages. All research has things that it's good at and it's got weaknesses. But at least when you do research differently, you encounter different advantages and disadvantages. So one thing I'd like is just some ideas for this type of research. I'd love our listeners to get in touch with LinkedIn or email and tell us, you know, instead of having to fill out 
surveys as research, what type of research would you find it fun to take part in? And think particularly about things like simulations. What would you find a fun simulation to either run yourself or be a participant in? And what could we learn from it? And there have been really useful safety findings from simulation research, Drew, in particularly the aviation and in nuclear control rooms and others that I'm aware of that have been quite fundamental in our understanding of you know, naturalistic decision-making and emergency response and, and a whole range of situations. So I'd love to, I'd love listeners to reach out. I'm not even going to add anything else. I'd love listeners to reach out to us and and help us come up with some things that, some questions that we could actually um, create some simulations around. So today we asked the question of how do trade-off decisions get made between production and safety? So Drew, do you want to have a go at the short answer? Gosh, I don't know that there is a short answer to that one, uh, except to say that Decisions don't get made as straightforward trade-offs. They get made in the context that production is a necessity and safety is something which is much less certain and much more vague. And I think that's right. I think if I had to say it in a sentence, I'd I'd probably say something like that uh, individuals will always try to maintain production in a way that doesn't create for them an unacceptable level of safety, whatever that means um, for them as an individual. And so to try to manage that trade-off between production and safety, we actually need to understand you know, all the things that we can do to, uh, to create an environment that allows for a balance of decision-making to occur between production and safety. And I think just saying from last week, just telling people to stop work when it's unsafe is, you know, this research shows is, is not going to be an effective strategy. That was a very long one-sentence summary there, David. Yeah, I sort of got a bit carried <laughs> away and kept, and kept going, but... But that's it. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.